have to come from not knowing the truth, from ignorance. Um, answers come from wisdom. Um, but in the course of practice, if you keep practicing, you might have questions arise. But then either through your own efforts or through a teacher, you answer those questions, you resolve them, you gain wisdom and understanding. That wisdom might lead to further questions. <coughs> so you might have to have further answers. But what you're doing is you're developing your wisdom as you go. So it's a perfectly valid way to practice. Um, he was saying there's maybe another way of where people just ask questions out of ignorance and they're not really practicing. So they're not really gaining more insight, more understanding. The questions just keep coming endlessly over and over again. And that way it's just an obstacle, a hindrance. But if your questions are leading to wisdom and you're growing in your understanding, that's okay. No more questions? I got it now. Once we start, we never end. So I have to restrain myself. <laughs> and the other people ask us. He says, practice, one of the important things in practice is to understand your character, your own character. Get to know that. Because everyone is different. <coughs> character is different. And they talk about, say in the scriptures, they talk about the different kinds of Characters. Some people um, tend towards greed, some towards anger, some towards doubt, some towards worry. And the, the doubtful type tends to ask a lot of questions. And so if, if that's your character, it's, you know, it's not something you can really change. It's something you should understand. You just get to know your character. If you do have a lot of questions, that's all right. Um, you just know that's the way I am, that's the way my character is. And that if you understand it, you won't have a problem. But if you're sort of fighting or wishing to change your character or fighting against it, well, you have a lot of suffering. Um, Ajahn Chah used to say, having a lot of doubts isn't a problem or an obstacle to the practice. You keep having the doubts, but the thing is you have to also learn to practice to the point where you can answer your own doubts, your own questions. 
And it, if you're doing that successfully, that means you know how to practice. Whatever doubt arises, you think about it, you work through it, through your practice, you come to an answer and resolve it yourself. And that's the best solution, obviously. Um, so it's very common um, to have doubts in the practice, but these doubts, they're not going to necessarily be doubts in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, that nature. It's more just in the techniques, the methods of practice. And it's very common, especially these days, as there's so many teachers, different Buddhist teachers, centers, monasteries, and they often have they have differences of style and the way they approach the Dhamma. It gives rise to a lot of doubts. Some will teach, so you go to Thailand, they'll often teach you to use the mantra Buddha for meditation. You go to Burma, they might say, follow the rising or falling of the abdomen, the breath, for your meditation technique, and so on, which... Uh, Gives rise to doubt. Said some practitioners have doubts about the the kind of technique they should use to develop samadhi. Um, what people who use the contemplation of death, what we call maranamusati, just recollecting death as a as a meditation theme. Um, they go to the scriptures, and the scriptures say, "Well, you can only achieve upajara samadhi, one level of samadhi. With that, you won't get to jhana or one pointedness of mind." So they might think, oh, well, I can't become enlightened using this method. But one who's practiced will know all these different methods and techniques, they're all bringing the mind to the same point where the mind becomes peaceful and unified. And you can say you develop your meditation using the Upajara, Maranusati, um, a recollection of death, and you get through to Upajara Samadhi. You can continue on. It's not that you're stuck, stuck there and stop there. You can continue to develop your samadhi and develop one-pointedness of mind. So that and many other techniques are all very valid techniques. Um, but the only way you know, to overcome the sort of doubts about techniques, methods, and that is to do the practice. And the more we do the practice and gain experience, then we can then we'll understand and we'll be getting beyond doubts, ending doubts. Well, just one more question. Um, there are many techniques you are talking about. So, do we stick to one techniques, or you know, you use the different techniques as your mood, according to your mood at that time? Because with all the techniques, the end result is to get the one pointedness, the calmness. So, one day you might feel that doing Buddha, another day you might bring the Anapanasati. So, is it okay? I mean, so long we get to come the result, the end result. So we just aim for the result that we get a one point and then to come. That's it. You respect what technique you use. You have to use the, the method that really works for you, which means one that you, you're getting results. That's, that's the test of whether it's, it's a good technique. Is it, you know, is it bringing you results? And are you getting more skilled in using that technique to calm your mind? Uh, so you have to look back at how your practice is going. What are the results of using any meditation technique? And if you see, oh, this is, I'm getting better at this, more experienced, more skilled at this, uh, that's a sign you can use it. But sometimes, you know, you use the same method, you don't get the 
the same calmness the next day, so you use another cup. It's okay, is that, is that understand? What you need is as is a foundation. So if there's one technique that you've used, at least sometimes you've gained peace from that. You should always be returning to that. So if some other times you experiment or you want to change a break from it, depending on the conditions or how you feel or whatever, well, you can do that. But you should always be returning to your main technique. And if you keep returning over and over again, then you'll develop that skill and a, and a foundation. Mm. now you're much more busy you haven't got that freedom maybe to just choose when you're going to meditate and sort of organize your day so easily but the basis of, of practice in daily life when you are busy like this is still to try and use your whatever activities you're doing as a basis for developing mindful awareness so <coughs> if you're cleaning or you're feeding the kids or something or try and make that the focus of your mindfulness, so your mind is focused on that activity and learning to bring your attention back to the present moment and concentrate on the particular activity you're involved with is still a valid way to develop awareness, even though it doesn't seem quite the same as sitting cross-legged in the formal way, you can still develop this awareness. And then you just have to sort of find your chance, you know, maybe there are occasionally little periods of time where you, your kids are asleep or they're out or something and you find you've got, oh, got a little bit of time today, well then you maybe actually sit down and meditate in the way you've done it before and, and you know, take a chance while you've got it. But if you don't have it, well you just carry on developing mindful awareness just with the activities you're doing, looking after the kids, cleaning the house and so on. I have a lot of responsibilities and I usually get home very late. Is it okay to meditate late at night, like midnight until 2 a.m.? This is an individual thing, <coughs> so if that's your routine or what's convenient for you works out, that's the best time for you, that's fine. So there's no one time that you have to meditate and other times are no good. It's what, what works for you, what suits you. I have a question about the Buddhists. Um, approach to change. I know the Buddhists accept that change is inevitable and change is um, ongoing. Uh, but the Buddhists distinguish between good and bad change. And if they think something is a bad change and the people are suffering as a result, should they try and do something about that to, to change it or turn it around into something better? Of course. Uh Understanding that it's the nature of the world, ourselves, and the world around us to be subject to change. That's an understanding that you know, Buddhism teaches that. 
but how we are practiced in relation to the different kinds of change that go on in the world or in our lives, well, that will vary. Like you say, there's good and bad change. There's change that uh, we maybe have, there's nothing we can do about, and then there's changes maybe that we should do something about. So we gave the example, say, our own personal life, um, the changes in our health and our body. And when we're young, we grow up, we, uh, we tend to grow fast and we get strong and healthy in the first part of our lives, which is a change, and you would say a good change. And that's for the good, gives us the strength and the, uh, the abilities to do many things in the world. Then over time, as we get older, we experience other kinds of change. Most people generally, you know, the body starts to slow down, degenerate a bit, and becomes more subject to illness and um, aging. That kind of change, well, one shouldn't just ignore it. One does what one can to help the body to ease, ease it through the changes of old age and sickness and even slow them down if you can, especially sickness. And if you can use medical methods and procedures and um, remedies, well, that all, all the better. But there may be, later on, there might, you might reach a point where there's nothing you can do. You know, you've got some illness that you just can't shake off or change at all or aging is so advanced you can't shake it off, can't do much about it anymore. At that point, well, you might have to accept and this is no longer a change that I can do anything about. Can't slow it down, can't stop it. So at that point, well, maybe your, the attitude of the way you use the reflection on change is simply to accept and this is change and there's nothing much I can do, I'll have to accept this. So it can vary. I mean, how we deal with change, our, our attitudes and, and what we do with change will vary according to the kind of change and the, the situation that we're in. I think we also have social changes, there are changes in society that seem to be bad. You've got a lot of people say, oh, that's just progress, that's just the nature of things. You should just accept it. But if having negative consequences in people's lives, should we then um, try to resist that and change with the things that change with them? Of course, if you see changes, say, in society, in our social attitudes and all these things that are negative cause and a cause of suffering and creation of suffering for people, well, one should try and do something about it. Um, especially if formerly we've had something that was good and then gradually it's changing and it's no longer good, it's becoming a, a source of suffering. Well, one, one would try to preserve what one had before, the good parts of society, the good attitudes, the good practices of that society. You try and preserve and you try and prevent different uh, practices or attitudes and things coming in. But again, it's similar with, say, health. It might reach a point where a certain practice or cultural trend has come to the point where it's just the norm and there's nothing you can do. It's just, you know, it's, it's established. At that point, you might have to accept and this is a change that I still, I don't think it's good, but there's nothing I can do about it. You might reach that point. Environmental activist, I was still, and um, and basically I think because it felt like too big a problem, 
in a few scary, especially things like climate change, whole sort of, you know, um, ESG gets to or whatever. And then um, I sort of started doing a bit of that work myself. And now what I'm finding is when I talk to people about things like climate change or those sorts of issues, I think people are, there's two things. First of all, people are afraid. And they also go into despair very quickly without stopping them before despair and, you know, mm. what can be done. And I think there's a lot of, I think there's problems with disturbing a lot of people. So instead of looking at them as sort of into destruction, basically, you know, focusing on your own life. Mm. Um, and it's, I think a lot of people find it very hard to communicate those problems and get people to act on them um, because people have a few barriers in He understands what you're saying. I can't tell you pretty much what, all of you, what you said. You said it's a very uh, common problem, the sort of thing you're talking about for the environmental groups and activists, people concerned about the environment all over the world. Not just here, and he says the only thing you can do is just kind of press on with patience and sympathy or understanding that you know most people in the world are just too caught up in their own personal problems and daily issues and problems that to take on something bigger like the environment, global climate warming, global changes of different kinds, you know, it's just too big and too far from them. That's why they have this fear or this block. Um, but that doesn't mean to say you give up. You just press on with patience and that understanding that it's going to take time. And you just do what you can to educate people, get them to see that, like you do, that you see the harm that is coming from the way we treat the world and its resources. And you just do the best you can, but with this patience and also with this quality of upeka, which is equanimity based on an understanding that, you know, Everyone is at their own level and at their own place in their own personal spiritual development. And, you know, some people might understand about global changes and the environment and climate warming and things, but many people won't or they're not ready to and you just have to accept that. And as long as you, you don't make suffering for yourself out of that, well, you can carry on. You want to know the technique to get to Samadhi, to make, develop Samadhi? If you want to develop Samadhi or this uh, calmness and peace of mind, the, the main quality you need to develop is what we call sati, mindfulness, mindful awareness. And all the different meditation techniques are aimed at developing this quality, so like the breathing maybe, developing mindful awareness of the breathing, the feeling of the breath going in and out. The next important quality is to have a continuity of practice, regular practice, frequent practice. It's not something you can just pick up, do once and then leave and then hope to pick it up again and improve. You have to keep doing it regularly. So if you keep regularly developing this mindful awareness using a meditation object, technique, what you'll find is you, you, you're, you're learning to, to bring it, restrain your mind, gather your mind in, compose the mind regularly through your day. 
And you'll notice if you let your mind go, you're not practicing mindfulness, well then whatever mood arises, whatever happens in your day, whatever experience you have, well you'll tend to start thinking about it. So you have good things happen where you get caught into the pleasure and the happiness and the delight of those good things and you'll be thinking a lot about them. Bad things happen, you'll be thinking a lot about them. You might get negative thoughts, depressed, depressed, feel depressed or worried or upset. If there's no mindfulness, that's our experience generally. Our mind is thinking a lot. We call it mental proliferation, proliferating all the time about our experiences. But when you practice mindfulness, you're learning to let that go. That means you're still aware or good, good things happen, well, it's good. Bad things happen, well, that's bad. But you're not letting your mind dwell on that or indulge too much in those experiences. You're just noting them and letting them go. If you do that regularly, you'll see, or if you can practice that in your daily life, your meditation and the experience of peace will become deeper and more uh, stronger and, and more profound for you. And as you do that, that's, that's giving you this peace, this clarity. That's, that's where you can develop what we call insight or wisdom. And the purpose of, of, of the, the samadhi is to help us to contemplate, to develop insight. And the way we develop insight may be just turn the mind to contemplate our own body, our own physical body as a human being, contemplating to see, oh, it's something that's impermanent. We grow up from being a baby, teenager, middle age, old age, one day we have to die. Literally just turning the mind to contemplate that simple truth that where our bodies are subject to change, over time we're changing. And in that sense to see that the body in itself cannot be a a lasting source of happiness for us and ultimately it's something that we can't really say we, we, we can own or control or keep as ours as a self forever because one day it has to die. This is where insight or wisdom arises when you meditate, you're just contemplating in this way. So when you do become peaceful, he said, turn to contemplate your body in this way, see it as something is impermanent and this is how wisdom arises in the practice. Um, my perspective again, um, my mother's baby and living in a five-bedroom house, and he became into a large degree, but which, um, which is a lot of needs, many needs. Um, and what that I have one sister who is only telephonically involved pretty much, so um, I can get phone calls where my mother will say, "Can you just drop her to me and pop her to me?" And that's fine. And it means that for me, if I need to work for money to provide a family, um, I can't. So that's one argument. And the other things are that to be able to do what I need for family and even friends at times, but mainly family and their immediate needs, but not wants, um, I'm caught in a real dilemma of. I feel very torn and I start driving on guilt and all sorts of non-constructive negative emotions and the resentment starts rising and then I feel bad that my resentment is there because I'm thinking that's my mother, you know, but I'm torn between the people who I have my relations to. Um, now it is a situation which has to eventually, not to pretend to say, I'm in leadership living. Um, 
was a bird talking to me. But um, my question, I guess, would be um, how I could better, advice on how I could better live with that situation without. I do try not to allow all the things to, to rise, but perhaps there's a better way. Mm. Again, I just do what I have to do when I can, whether I can or not. So, um, is there any advice that Ajahn would give me on how to deal with that situation generally? It's a pretty generic question. Probably the best advice you can give is that if you're going to help anyone in life, you also have to be aware that you have to help yourself at the same time. It's difficult to help others if you're already suffering yourself or unhappy yourself. So you start with yourself. In terms of looking after your mum, we all know to, to, it's, it's our duty to give something back to our parents because they've helped us since we were born. That's a duty that you know anyone with any intelligence, awareness, will, will recognize and accept and have that duty. But our family is also our duty. You have a husband, you have children, that's a duty that you also can't uh, avoid or deny. It's there as well. So this is where you have to, to get it clear. You get your the clarity in that your basic intention is to perform whatever you can to fulfill these duties towards parents, towards family, and to, your, to yourself. You start with your own intention always to get that intention established that your, your aim is just to do the, the right thing, the good thing for your family, for your parents, for yourself. Then in the course of doing that, well, obviously there'll be sometimes there'll be conflicting um, demands made on you. Sometimes you have to be in three places at once or whatever. Uh, and you might find sometimes you just can't do everything that you set out or that there's, sometimes you're lacking somewhere and then you didn't something you wanted to do because you didn't have the time or the, the resources to do it. You have to accept that. It'll be like that. But it's not. that's not damaging your underlying intention. That's just learning to how to deal with the difficulties of your situation. And the thing to do is not create further suffering, further problems by you know, self-criticism, feeling guilty and all of that. It's just to always return to your basic intention, which is to help everyone do the right thing, do your duty, and just do it the best you can. If you do make a mistake or you're lacking somewhere, well, just you have to just sit down and say, well, how can I improve on that? Maybe next time I'll do it differently, do this, do that. And you just do your best to learn and to try and divide your time. But always come back to your basic intention. Look after your mind. Keep that in a positive space. And then do whatever you can amongst those different duties that you have. Uh, I noticed that increasingly I'm uh, getting in anger like whether the sensation in the body. I see a lot more out of comfortable breathing. I'm getting more anger. And the mind just stay there, not not interested in feeling uh, that bring the what do you call that the, the sensation or whatever. Just staying there. I feel the sensation and I realize that oh my god, as I did that, you feel the chest area like a lot of strong movement. What do you call it? Vibration. But this can be still. And uh, this is happening when I take my meditation regularly. And last night, when I was here, 
in the middle of the night, I was uh, woken up by this vibration in the people. So, am I on the right path or should, should I move to concentration more? Yeah, he says he thinks you're practicing correctly. So uh, maybe in the past you've been more interested to contemplate, think, and know things about the Dhamma and, and more external things. Now your your faith is increasing. You're you're turning your mind more into inwardly to practice meditation. So naturally you get these different feelings, experiences coming up as the mind is quietening down. So there's nothing to uh, concern yourself there. You're practicing correctly. So I keep doing that. Is it now whatever arises? Yeah, that's enough. Just whatever arises, just note it and then let it go. The idea is to keep returning to the mind itself, keep letting go of everything else, and this is the way Samadhi develops the mind to become peaceful. So it's giving the Samadhi not a big were the wisdom arise from that? Yeah. So the mind knows what to do. So you don't have to go and say, this is the anicca, this is dukkha, you don't have to have this kind of thing. The insight that we are aiming to develop in the practice is what we call pavana maya panya. This is knowing the truth as opposed to just thinking about the truth. In the beginning, our wisdom develops. We just we hear the Dhamma, we read Dhamma books, and we think about it. We just think about it. What's what? What's what? What's this? What's that? And we intellectualize and we think about it. But that's not yet true insight. It's just thinking about the Dhamma. It's still useful and it's a necessary step on the path. But it's not yet true insight. When the mind becomes peaceful with samadhi, then you're able to know. Anicca Dukkha Anatta, without having to think about it, you're knowing or seeing it clearly through your experience at that point. Say the mind starts to think about something, your, your mind is peaceful with Samadhi and then some mental proliferation starts. Instead of believing in it and following it, getting lost in it, you can just see it as Anicca Dukkha Anatta and you can let it go quite naturally and quite easily. So with this vibration, in this, especially this area, Sometimes in meditation or in the middle of the night, or it can happen any time. Is it a kind of element, or, or you know, or is it just would it explode? Will it be explode? He says, "Don't worry, there will be no explosion. It's just, <laughs> it's just the mind itself, the mind gathering together, and it's a new experience. So obviously, you've noticed here, and it's uh, sort of." causing you to wonder what it is, but it's just the mind gathering together. Um, it's nothing nothing to worry about or concern yourself about. He uses the word waking up. The mind is waking up from its former, former state of delusion and attachment. It's the mind is waking up, coming out of that a little bit. A bit. So it's a, it, there's a bit of energy there. Maybe what, what you say is a vibration, sort of a sense of more energy, more alertness, more wakefulness. If that's really the experience, you have, do have to be a bit careful. If your blood pressure is going up, it's a sign you're probably trying too hard, trying to force your mind and trying too hard, and you need to relax. 
it's, if that's what's happening, uh, you know, then maybe check your blood pressure from time to time. But if that's what's happening, it's just like you're, you're making the, your meditation stressful. You're trying too hard, wanting too much, maybe. Need to relax. Yes, that's correct. Our understanding, our insight at first is, tends to be just thinking, seeing something, realizing about the truth, but more on a superficial way, but then it becomes more deeper to the point where the mind or the heart is just knowing these truths. That's the, the point where we call it Bhavanamaya Panya, where there's the deep insight which can actually uproot defilements, actually allow you to completely let go of delusions and greed and anger. That's the point where you can see the Dhamma. Only it happened in the last year. When I sit and start to calm down, I cannot slouch. There is a, like a push in the spine, in your, your body goes Am I imagining all this part of the practice? Yeah, that's the correct thing. That's. It's a natural development of the mind, the arising of more peaceful states of mind gives energy to the body as well. Um, and that's when I started doing things, you know, more active things, and, 
And since then, I've felt really happy. Um, and it's kind of a happiness that's always there. Um, and so, I suppose I don't really understand why. Um, yeah. I think probably just your experience is helping you to understand more deeply what real happiness is. And that, you know, many people find this when faced with the possibility of death. Then you start to see, well, what's really important, where is the real happiness in life? And it's not in a lot so much of these more external things, superficial things. It's to do with your state of mind and developing that and developing good goodness in your mind. And part of the way we develop goodness is always helping others, so helping the environment, helping the family, the kids. You're just seeing that more clearly, so you're more in touch with happiness and the roots of happiness. That's what seems to be what you're describing. It's a, it's a sort of a, a sort of a steady feeling. Like I'm just wondering, is that like you know how, like when you realise a lot of things are going to end, is the thing that lasts those kind of roots of happiness? It's kind of inner happiness, yes, it gives us a steadiness and it's very much the stepping stone in, say, spirit, one's personal spiritual development. One has to have a source of nourishing the mind. So one has this happiness that comes from just recognizing what's important, what, what's important with the world, say, looking after the environment, looking after other people, looking after the family, and also one's own personal meditation. It very much helps that. And it's something to recollect. So like I said, if you meditate, you, you can recollect when you meditate the good that you've done and the happiness that you've experienced and developed through your good actions. It's a very natural way to make the mind feel calm and peaceful or steady. It's a steady, steadiness of mind. And one can do that as one meditates. Um, just recollect, you know, good actions, good good deeds, good good acts that one's done in the past, and, and doing even just say today, what have I done today? And you'll you'll find as your mind becomes more aware, there are many good things you're doing, often without realizing, but now you're actually recollecting them. You become more aware of them, and you feel good for that. And it's a source of happiness. You all need a race. Thank you for organizing this big event and all the Sangha and all the senior teachers for coming as the teachers and the Sioux family. Um, thank you, thank you very much. You can have your question, it's all right. What's your question? I was thinking, you know, that when we do Dana, we got all this merit. When we just what, what we did, I think in the past few months, we done a lot of good merit. But how come it end up like that? You know that how to do do the Dharma in such a way that you won't end up in this? Don't want to be like him. There's <laughs> <laughs> very easy antidote or protection against any becoming like that person or anyone in that situation. It's just keep your sila. If you keep sila, they keep the five precepts. Even if you can become very rich, super rich, you won't be creating suffering for anyone else or yourself. 
you use those guidelines at any level of society, in any situation in society, those are guidelines that you can use. So, because the way he, when he offered Ghana, he had that for him, he wanted something that created this kind of mental state. So, the important quality for anyone is, is panya, wisdom, and understanding. And uh, as we, all of us, as we improve ourselves in our practice, we do dana, we keep the precepts, we meditate. All of us are going to improve and benefit from this. Maybe it will bring us some wealth, some better material situation, it brings some happiness. And, you know, anyone is the same. This person you're talking about could have been the same. That will ha happen. But as, as you become wealthier, more powerful, more influential, you know, you need the wisdom to cope with that situation because it's not like you, you do dana, you, you become more wealthy, you know, you're necessarily or automatically going to be wise with that. You could become more deluded or you can have more anger arise, more greed arise, especially if you have a lot more wealth, more power, or there's a lot of temptation there. The important thing is to have wisdom and see what you're doing, see whether it's causing you suffering. And he says a lot of uh, prime ministers, politicians, big businessmen and that, you know, and they have a lot of suffering. So automatically you have a lot of money and power that you're going to have a lot of happiness. It's not, it doesn't always go like that. The important thing for to have happiness is to have wisdom. And if you have wisdom and mindfulness, well, you can keep your own chelators which cause you suffering. You can keep them in check. That's the important thing to aim for. If you're developed, you know, you're saying if you make merit, you don't want to be like that. Well, make merit, do good things, develop yourself in a good way and develop your mindfulness and your wisdom and you'll be okay. It'll protect you from falling into greed or anger or delusion. Okay, yeah. <laughs> You know, during the Buddha's time, Buddha's, uh, when, he, when he was enlightened, uh, in the Sutta they say the earth crack, move, yeah? I, I was wondering, you know, is it the, the earth crack or is it the internal crack, the body inside? Because, you know, it is like that, you know, we have an earthquake now and then, you can come to the enlightenment. Do you understand my question? If we're talking about the kind of thing they talk about in the scriptures, the kind of earthquake that would happen when they say the earth shook or the earth was, was shaken by the enlightenment of the Buddha, we're talking about the experience of the human mind penetrating the Four Noble Truths, becoming enlightened. That's a very special experience, a very powerful experience, but on the mental level, it's, it's a mental thing, it's a purification of the mind. You could Sort of describe it as sort of the mind spreading out this this amazing power of the enlightened mind, the purified mind spreading outwards. So it has a sort of a, an effect, a ripple around around the universe. But this is a mental thing. There would be no destruction or in the, not in the normal these kind of earthquakes we have where you know lots of destruction. It's not the same as that. No. 